Good evening. Thank you for joining us again for our uh, Wednesday afternoon Bible class. Uh, over the last several weeks, over the last several years, uh, Rick has been going through a class uh, on uh, types in the, in the Scripture. And so today will be the fateful day when that is closed out. Fingers crossed, right? We're going to knock on wood because uh, we'll probably get halfway through this lesson and I'll have an aneurysm or something. No, <laughs> really knock on wood for that. And then that, and then it will hang out there forever and it will never get done. No, we're going to finish this today. And uh, as I mentioned last week, what we are doing is going back and just highlighting uh, the different types that we have looked at over the uh, the past couple of years as we've gone through this lesson. If you missed last week, we talked uh, about um, those first three chapters um, that we, first three lessons that we had where we defined what a type was, we uh, looked at why types are so important and why we think God uh, used them in the scriptures and and really how unique they are you could say in literature, but we we know uh, from a historical standpoint, from uh, in history, from in reality, these types are are just really, really, and I'm going to use a complex term here, neat, um, <laughs> where uh, we as human beings get to look back and see how God has made things happen so that we will have more confidence in the fact that his son uh, was sent to this earth to die for us and that Jesus was that son. Um, last week we also uh, looked at um, Adam uh, as the first type and, and decided that he was uh, more of an anti-type. Um, he was uh, more the opposite of Jesus, uh, but the comparison is certainly there between the two because of what Adam introduced and what Christ resolved um, as a result of that, that first sin in the garden. We talked about Abel, we talked about Isaac, we talked about Moses, talked about Joseph and how uh, just on the surface you wouldn't think that there would be that much of a comparison, but when it comes right down to it, there are tons of comparisons uh, that you could make between Joseph and uh, Jesus. And we also uh, stressed last week, as we have uh, throughout this study, that we, we run a fine line between going not far enough with a comparison versus going too far with a comparison. And we have tried to adopt the uh, approach in the, in the study of these lessons that here are some very interesting similarities uh, in these two individuals and in this institution and this individual and this institution and that institution, these events, whatever uh, our comparison might be. Um, and in many cases we can say there are too many coincidences, if you want to call them that, not to be intended uh, by God. Uh, if God himself in Scripture didn't use the word type, uh, then we would say, well, man is dreaming all of this up. We're just, we're doing what uh, a few years back was Nostradamus. Mm. Uh, somebody went back and dug up, I think he's in the 1500s, uh, Nostradamus wrote down a bunch of these little uh, cantos or something, a bunch of these little 
statements about uh, people and things and places and events and and uh, probably I don't want to say 30 years ago now uh, somebody rediscovered those and says oh yeah look here he's he's, pre he's uh, predicting the future here is the Kennedy assassination oh here's you know here's something else here's World War II and and uh, just all of that and and that is uh, I think in our heads Nostradamus was not inspired uh, Nostradamus did not predict the future um, or if he did it was it was luck it wasn't anything that that he knew was going to happen the scriptures are something different the scriptures are from God they are inspired they are God's word to us and God is a being that can make things happen he can prophesy he can have his people tell you events are going to transpire this way and the test of a prophet is do they transpire that way in the book they do day in and day out and consistently and persistently so the fact that God has used these types and we have called them many prophecies because that's what they are they are forecasting a person to come later an event to come later uh, that we can draw these comparisons to across time and see that God had a hand in doing that we looked at David I believe was the last one we looked at uh, at the end of last week and we're just getting into Jonah so uh, without uh, without any further delay let's let's jump into Jonah Jonah probably is uh, a, a short uh, type and he's probably um, like Adam another anti-type uh, you would you would look at the book of Jonah it's uh, what four four short chapters I believe um, and you would say Jonah's not a very good prophet Jonah rebels. Jonah runs from God um, and tries to get out of being a prophet. And God uh, straightens him out on that. And he goes and does what he is supposed to do for, uh, for, those, um, for those people in Nineveh. But, um, and so you compare that to Jesus and you say, well, how, you know, how, is, how is that the situation? we were able to find we were able to find some things and then there is one specific passage that uh, that links the two whether Jonah is a strong uh, type of Christ or not I'm not so sure but we do have that one one verse that we will uh, will uh, visit briefly found out uh, in in reviewing Jonah uh, that he and Jesus <clears throat> grew up in towns that were about you know three miles apart uh, in an upper um, or lower Galilee, upper uh, Judah, I guess at the time, uh, maybe up near Samaria, you have um, Nazareth, and I can't remember the name of the town that Jonah. Uh, I could look it up, but um, I'll let you look that up. Um, are only about three miles apart, and so uh, the the only thing that is interesting about that is that that coincidence. But also it could be uh, that both were products of small towns. Nazareth was not looked uh, upon with, with much favor, as we find out um, when, was it Andrew comes to Philip and, and says, we found the Messiah. He's uh, Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter. And so uh, without the Jesus of Nazareth and, and uh, his response is, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, it could have been a joke. It could have been, 
you know, just something that people said for uh, individuals who live close by. I might have said the same thing about a town that was close to me as I was growing up. Uh, or it could be that just Nazareth did not have a very, uh, very good reputation. We do know that when Christ went to Nazareth and preached, he was not able to do much good there. And it says he did not do many miracles there because he was not received well. And we have that statement, a uh, prophet is not without honor save in his own country. A prophet has honor everywhere else, but when a prophet comes back home, they're just known as next door Joe. And so it could be that that was working when Jesus uh, went back to uh, Nazareth to preach and, and around uh, his hometown. Anyway, they had these common roots, he and, and Jonah. They were not, obviously, were not um, contemporaries. Uh, Jonah comes much earlier than Christ. They uh, had a common mission. Uh, most of those who followed the will of God, be they uh, Old Testament characters that we have looked at, uh, be they uh, prophets that uh, were commissioned by God to go and preach to Israel or in this case, Gentiles, uh, Jonah was uh, instructed to go to Nineveh, which was an extremely wicked Gentile city. And, you know, if, if we're going to give Jonah any uh, credit for standing up to God, if, if he deserves anything, that was out of the ordinary in the first place to, to speak to uh, Gentile, prophesy to Gentiles. Uh, but Nineveh was an extremely wicked city as well. And so um, the message that Jonah eventually took to them and um, carried out God's word was, y'all are in trouble. Repent. You've got a lot of bad stuff coming your way uh, unless you do. And really that was the message of, of Christ. That was the message of John the Baptist, the, the one who came preparing the way for Christ, attempting to turn the people back, turn their hearts back back to God and uh, make them righteous again. Have them focus on God and His Word and His laws once again. In Nineveh's case, it would have been just turn from your wicked ways. There are, there's a better way. Um, there is a way for you to save yourself from the coming destruction that he uh, conveys to them. And so that is his message. And that was Jesus' message as well. Uh, John said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus also preached repentance. I was not aware of that. Um, he and, and his disciples who, uh, who went out once Jesus started on, on his, his mission here on earth preached repentance as well. And they baptized as well. Uh, John was baptizing in and around Jordan, and, and Jesus' disciples were baptizing um, as well. So, repentance, that common theme that we hear mm, really throughout the Bible, uh, beginning very early on and carrying through even uh, through the book of uh, Revelation. Um, <laughs> the letter to the seven churches uh, recorded by John um, Many of those say, repent and turn back or else this is going to happen. So that is a theme 
that is throughout and they both had that that common theme um, and then this one could be uh, a stretch but uh, we know that Jesus selflessness his sacrificial nature his ability to push down any um, individual personal desires and in favor of others in favor of his father and the mission that that he wanted him to complete was perfect it was a perfect uh, sacrifice on his part Jonah uh, in his attempt to run from this decree by God to go and, and preach to Nineveh um, gets on a boat and tries to sail as far away as he can now you know, when you study Jonah, the book of Jonah, you say, what were you thinking? You know, how did, how did you think that you could float away from God? And once he's given you uh, this, this uh, decree, you know, how do you think you're going to get out of this? It's not going to end well for you. Well, it doesn't. And, and things turn bad on the boat. And those um, pagans on the boat start casting lots and talking about their gods and and say who you know surely the gods are angry with one of us who is it among us that's done something bad and Jonah sits there and and maybe twiddles his thumb for a little <laughs> thumbs for a little bit and he says it's me uh, I did it it's my fault my God told me to do this and I have done it and, and nothing you can do uh, will get you out of this except get rid of me and if you get rid of me then um, then you'll be okay. And they do. They throw him overboard. Uh, at the time we studied this, I thought, well, Jonah, why don't you just, if you're that sacrificial, jump overboard. That would, <laughs> that would be a selfless act. But they throw him overboard, and we know the rest of that story. We know that the, the great fish uh, swallows him. He lives in there uh, in the fish for three days, and then after that time period, the fish... And this is a rather fantastical story, and we talked about this, you know, how can this be? And, uh, and it's no more fantastical than any of the other miracles that we find in the Bible, in reality. It seems a little bit uh, out of the ordinary. Uh, nobody else lived inside of a fish uh, for three days. Um, there were other people who were raised from the dead, um, Old Testament and New Testament. So, you know, while that is fantastical, while that is um, uh, certainly apart from the norm, um, dwelling in, inside a, a fish for, a large fish for three days, um, some people would say, that just couldn't happen. Well, you know, you, it, it's not told as a fable or a fairy tale or an allegory or anything like this. God says go preach to Nineveh and, and he doesn't and this occurs and so so Jonah's sac ultimately his sacrificial nature um, to um, to not allow uh, the destruction of those who were on the boat uh, along with him and then there's this last piece um, ultimately Jonah does God's will ultimately Jonah goes to Nineveh and preaches to them and preaches rather convincingly 
because the king and everybody else in the city, I believe it says, repents. They put on the traditional sackcloth and ashes. They change their ways. Jonah must have been quite an, uh, a convincing uh, messenger for God. And God knew that uh, when he sent him. But uh, it took Jonah a little bit of convincing here. Uh, but ultimately, we can say he submitted to God's will, carried out God's will um, to, uh, to a T, I guess you could say. And so um, they have that comparison as well. Is there anything else that... Uh, so Jesus make? points out that Jonah and he both spent some three days in the belly of something. Jonah in the, the well of the fish and Jesus in the belly of the earth. Yes, and uh, uh, that was, the, uh, that was the, the one passage that I was talking about. The, the point is um, they were seeking signs, I believe. Uh, give us a sign that, that you are uh, the Son of Man. And he said something about as Jonah dwelt in the belly of the, of the fish for three days, so shall the Son of Man um, be, dwell in the earth and then rise again. So um, Jesus cites Jonah's situation there, not as an allegory, not as a fable, but as a fact, the same way that he was going to, as a fact, be dead for three days and rise again. Thank you for mentioning that. Elijah and John the Baptist. This is the first one that we got to uh, in our list of people-to-people of -people comparisons that was not uh, a person com being compared to Jesus Christ. Um, Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. Um, a considerable amount of information uh, is included in the Old Testament about Elijah um, and his successor, uh, Elisha. And so we have um, that person who was a prophet uh, for God, a prophet of God, doing what he did. Uh, they came from uh, similar uh, backgrounds, and at least in the fact that uh, both of them were persecuted by power. Uh, those who were called upon by God to deliver his message to those who didn't want to hear that message often ran up against uh, individuals who could do them harm. And uh, both of those, both of those individuals, Elijah and John the Baptist, uh, John the Baptist ended up uh, being beheaded. Um, and it wasn't the beheading itself was not what was caused by his preaching, uh, but the fact that he was in that situation to to uh, have that happen to him um, was because of his preaching. He was preaching uh, against Herod and uh, Herod had uh, done some really bad things overall and the ones that one thing that's mentioned I believe is he had his brother's wife yeah. what the uh, situation was and so John along with indicting the Pharisees and the Jewish elite and everybody else so when you go back and look repentance wasn't the only thing that he <laughs> talked about he indicted the the upper class those who were uh, charading as as pious individuals and exposing their um, their hypocrisy uh, the same way that Jesus did in Matthew the 23rd chapter when he just lays into them on about five or six different um, actions and activities and 
and attitudes that they had. And so John was a vocal uh, preacher and he did not fear uh, consequences. So Elijah was the same way. Elijah uh, had Jezebel and Ahab. He was prophesying against them. Jezebel and Ahab, uh, King Ahab. Chris can give you more information on this than I, but but he had uh, corrupted, along with a whole line of kings, um, God's word and had gone into idolatry. Uh, Baal worship was, was one of the main things that they did, and um, Elisha was sent to them. They were Jews, but they were worshiping idols. They and they had they had converted pretty much the whole country into Baal worshippers, and so uh, Elijah is sent to um, preach against that and to speak truth to power in this situation. And he. Um, does so extremely dramatically. It's one of the, my favorite stories of the Bible uh, on Mount Carmel, where he uh, says, "Okay, let's let's have this out. I'm a prophet of God. I'm a prophet of Jehovah. You all have prophets of Baal. Let's have it out." And so they set up this big um, confrontation on uh, on Mount Carmel. And it, I'm not going to go into all that detail, but but Elijah does everything he can to thwart the impact of his God being able to uh, bring down fire upon this um, upon this altar. And he does everything he can to mock the prophets of Baal when they try to call upon their gods uh, to do the same. And ultimately Jehovah comes down and the fire is consuming and, and it, you know, it even dries up all the water that he has put on that and around that. And uh, so Elijah uh, takes this defeat of the prophets of Baal even a step farther, and what does he do to them? Oh, he kills them. He, ki oh, he kills them all. <laughs> 850 uh, of them. <laughs> 800, 850 prophets. And these are the king's prophets. And so uh, Elijah not only speaks truth to power, he demonstrates his, his, his attitudes toward error uh, very dramatically, and that that's just one of the great the great stories of, of the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, I think the cause of that, Ahab, who is uh, the, you know not too many people named their daughters Jezebel, mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a good reason. Uh, Jezebel uh, is in the Bible uh, pictured as one of those wives that does not push her husband to greatness; she pushes him farther and farther down a, a dark road and I'm not so sure that Ahab would have gone as far as he did. In fact, I'm sure he probably did, would not have without Jezebel's influence. Anyway, both Ahab and Jezebel um, set out and, and tried to uh, chase Elijah not only out of the country but they're, they're bent on killing him. Uh, he escapes um, and both of them end up as he prophesies uh, that they will and neither of those prophecies are very appetizing uh, prophecies about those individuals. So, they spoke truth to power. Both of them uh, were persecuted by um, those who did not believe in, in what they had to say for God. John uh, the Baptist, uh, it it says, I believe it is a prophecy, and is it Malachi? Um, I could be wrong here, 
but it says one will come and prepare the way, and it could be one that that's a prophecy back earlier even than that, that says he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so um, that one who was to come, we find out, because the prophecy is, is quoted in the New Testament, was John the Baptist. And John is an individual who has that spirit of Elijah, speaking truth to power. The power that John the Baptist spoke with and uh, was was convincing. John had, I don't know how many uh, followers John had. All of Jerusalem and Judea were turning out, it says or suggests in there, to hear this man out in the wilderness preaching about the coming of the kingdom and baptizing people. I don't know how many he baptized, but I get this picture of him doing an awful lot of preaching and an awful lot of baptizing over the course of, you know, I don't know, maybe a year prior, prior to Jesus. It would be a guess. But he actually, he had to have time to get his message out and they didn't have uh, Snapchat and Twitter and all those back in those days. It was word of mouth, and this person who heard him and who baptized him had to go back home and tell others about him, and then they had to come and hear him. So it was a much slower process. So I'm assuming that there was a, a you know, at least some amount of time before Jesus actually comes, and John says, "My job is done. I must diminish so that he can uh, excel." And um, he did that with, with great humility, and he also uh, did it even up to the end of his days uh, when he was beheaded by, by Herod. Uh, both of them were selected by God. Both of them were, uh, you could call them wilderness men. The description of, of John's um, garb and how he lived and what he ate. Um, Elijah was out in the wilderness a lot on the run. Um, and so uh, both of them were willing. They spoke truth to power, and both, uh, as great as they were, were inferior uh, to Jesus. Jesus does not necessarily enter into this uh, particular uh, type because it's between uh, Elijah and John the Baptist. So, talking about the guy, the two that spoke truth to power, if, unless I'm missing my history here. Herod was not a, a Jew. He's, a, I think, an Edomite. Oh, okay. And Jezebel drove the train on on Elijah's on you know his persecution. So they both spoke truth to foreign powers who were posing as okay. Jewish royalty. Okay. So even maybe more nuanced there. That's true. That's true. So that that's even a, a detail that that goes cuts a little bit deeper than than what we had already talked about. So. That was one which was rather unique because it did involve Jesus. Um, almost all all the other ones that we looked at talked about um, someone compared to Jesus, but this was um, two other characters, uh, Elijah and John the Baptist. So that that wrapped up the person-to-person -person, uh, comparisons uh, types that we had in the Bible, or at least the ones that we looked at, um, and then we went into uh, things. Um, and uh, individuals and we the first one we looked at was the Passover and uh, th this one this one is just right down the line 
I don't know that God could have, I'm sure he could have, done more than he did to make this type real and complete. Um, the Passover itself, as we know, was an instituted back during the, uh, the last uh, few days of Egyptian bondage uh, by Israel, uh, of Israel there uh, in Egypt. And um, God, through Moses and Aaron, have demonstrated um, nine previous plagues that he uh, inflicts upon Egypt to try to get the Pharaoh to let his people go. Each time he, uh, you know, at least the middle to the last group, he says, okay, okay, and then he changes his mind and, and, and uh, says, no, you can't leave. So the last one that, that God inflicts upon them is the death of the firstborn. And in this plague, not only does he decimate um, Egypt, because if you think it's the firstborn of every animal and, and, and every human or every family is taken their life is taken. And not only does he do that, but he also sets up a feast that is to be remembered throughout their generations. He sets up this Passover feast. And why is it called Passover? Well, you know, the death, the angel of death, is it was it actually angel of death, goes through uh, Egypt taking lives but he passes over the house, houses of the, of the Israelites who have taken the blood of this unblemished lamb that they have been instructed to prepare and put it on the doorpost and above the, uh, the door uh, of their houses. And that is, how, that is how they are able to avoid the death that occurs through the death of the firstborn that God um, inflicts upon Egypt here. Um, it's a remembrance feast. It, it's, a, it's a family feast. There's a lot of detail that they were supposed to do uh, or not do with the, with the lamb and um, details about how it's be prepared and what the, you did with the bones afterward and, and, and all sorts of things that, that went into this detail, which was a... Um, I guess a, a forecast actually for how God was going to deal with his people once he gave them his law because his law was identically um, detailed. And when you get back to um, Exodus and then uh, how, they're, how it's re-recorded uh, re and, and maybe even greater detail in, in, in Leviticus, Deuteronomy, um, you have a considerable amount of fine points <laughs> that, that God places into his expectations on his people. And um, he does this with this Passover. And what he creates with this Passover is a remembrance feast, something that will always, every time Passover comes around, once a year, they will be required to revisit this episode in their history where God saved them from Egyptian bondage, that he took them out of a really bad and dire situation um, that was getting worse as, um, as at that particular time. Um, and so Moses leads them out, and God establishes this Passover feast.
um, with them. And, it, and like we say, it was to be remembered throughout um, their existence. We, I went back and reinserted into this lesson the information that I shared um, with you just a few weeks ago uh, about the importance of Bethlehem and the use of the Passover lamb later when uh, the Jews are situated in Judea. They've gone into the Promised Land. They've had several hundred years there, and uh, the temple is built and, and all of this. And then the, this, this little town, old little town of Bethlehem uh, outside of Jerusalem that served as the source for many of those lambs that were uh, raised in an unblemished fashion. They, they protected them so that they would be unblemished and were uh, taken into Jerusalem and offered during, during Passover. So uh, we did talk about that considerably and how that sets up for us this comparison between the Passover unblemished spotless lamb and Jesus our unblemished spotless sinless sacrifice for our sins and we had this this chart that I just this reproduced here uh, and on my paper so that I could just run down there the lamb was slain on the 14th of Nisan the first month of the Jewish calendar Jesus was crucified not coincidentally but by design by God I am convinced on the 14th of the first month of the Jewish calendar Nisan the lamb was to be without blemish number of restrictions and conditions had to be met Jesus was unblemished and sinlessly perfect the lamb was brought into the house for preparation four days prior to its death and 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 consumption during that feast Jesus entered Jerusalem four days before his death on the cross coincidence I'm not thinking uh, it was coincidence at all no bones of the lamb would be broken not even during the eating of the meal Jesus' bones, contrary to crucifixion custom, as we talked about, uh, were not broken. Lamb was to be consumed entirely on the eve of the Passover. Nothing remained overnight. Jesus was taken down from the cross the same evening of his death, which was also against custom. The lamb died in the place of the Israelite firstborn with the blood on the, over, on the doorpost. Jesus uh, died in our place so that we wouldn't have to bear condemnation for our sins. The lamb's blood was sprinkled on the doorpost to save them. Jesus' blood uh, saves us as well. The blood was placed on all parts of the door, the entry to that individual house. John 10 tells us that Jesus is our door to salvation um, and freedom from our sins. Hyssop, and there's something Chris mentioned uh, a few weeks, a couple weeks ago, that uh, hyssop is a, is a plant. It's got, uh, I, I think I had a picture of it. Uh, during uh, during the lesson when we talked about this, um, it's it's kind of uh, it's got mm, it's got you got pull one up. Uh, it's got uh, I think it's got a bunch of small leaves on it, and I don't I don't know enough about trees to point out one. Maybe maybe a willow tree that has you know the 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 branches that's, that fall down and then the leaves that they they used hyssop to um, spread the blood over and around the door. And while Jesus was on the cross, lo and behold, hyssop was dipped into the, the sour vinegar, I believe, or sour wine or something that was offered to him on the cross. Um, you could say, well, hyssop was just used, you know, um, for those types of things. Could be, 
but it, but you didn't have to have that particular um, branch in these two situations coinciding uh, the way on the we same have it. day on the same day <laughs> the same <laughs> time the same, you know all this kind of stuff you have one there yeah all these are hyssop so like this thing yeah and that obviously I don't know if that was uh, part of that maybe maybe that the flower that was on there uh, maybe that was the spongy part that would allow you to uh, absorb uh, the blood and put it over the door and so um, Passover marked their liberation from Egypt, um, Egyptian slavery uh, over a course of years. I uh, received some enlightenment on this, and we always talk about being in bondage for 400 years, but they were in Egypt for 400 years. They may not have been in bondage for 400 years, and I'm not going to get into that discussion mm -hmm. right now, but Chris enlightened me on, on that one. I did some study on my own. Jesus' sacrifice lib liberates us from bondage. And the comparison between the bondage of our sins and Christ relieving us of that, the Son of God relieving us from that, and God sending Moses to relieve people from their bondage in Egypt um, and the freedom that they experienced as a result, um, another point of comparison. Israelites, remember the importance of the blood and partook of the Lamb's body. We do the same. We partake of our lamb's body, our unblemished lamb's body and blood every every Sunday when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And so that is our remembrance feast. And it appears that when uh, Jesus set up the, uh, the Lord's Supper um, that he did it at Passover and there is, it's, it's fully meant for us to make that connection between our remembrance feast of Jesus and the freedom that he provides and the salvation he provides and the Passover feast for those Jewish people at that time to experience the freedom uh, that they had. I'm going to move a little faster. Uh, the tabernacle, I've got a bunch of, of stuff. I just cut and pasted a bunch from, from the lesson. Um, and I'm just going to say this. The tabernacle was God's residing place. The not only the emblem of God's presence, but God's presence with the Israelites as they left Egypt and went out into the wilderness. And as they uh, ended up staying in the wilderness because they didn't go into Canaan, the cat tabernacle uh, was a part of that which tied them to God and God used as a demonstration of His care and provision for them. It was a precursor in and of itself of the temple. You know, what do they call it? Bricks and mortar? Uh, you know, the bricks and mortar version of that uh, a little bit later on uh, after, after David's reign uh, where David made all the preparation for that and then Solomon was the one who built that temple. That temple was uh, marvelous. It was, it was fascinating. It, it had gold everywhere and it was, again, the embodiment as much as God who is a spirit can embody something it represented God's presence and and uh, God for a long time was present there eventually he he withdrew himself uh, due to the sin I believe that took place so the tabernacle itself we find many comparisons between the tabernacle itself and what it stood for but there are things within the tabernacle itself and within the temple itself 
that represent various aspects or features or characteristics or attitudes uh, about Jesus as well. And so I would just encourage you to go back and look at that lesson uh, once again to refresh your memory uh, on that. We talked about uh, lesson 14, the manna and water that was provided for the Israelites as they traveled um, after they left Egypt and as, as they uh, wandered in the wilderness uh, the 40 years after they were turned back. They began grumbling very early on uh, about how, oh, we had our flesh pots and we had anything we wanted to eat back in Egypt. It would be better for us to go back and, and be in slavery than to die out here in the wilderness. They always thought they were going to die because they didn't have water and didn't have food. And God was not going to let that happen. God provided them with water in miraculous ways to demonstrate to them that he was still providing for them. He provided bread, manna, from heaven in miraculous ways to show them that he was still watching over them, providing for them, caring for them. He even provided quail, meat, uh, for them as well. But the two pieces that we wanted to concentrate on here were the two pieces that, that Jesus mentioned later as he fulfills the type of God's provision for the people under the old law and in the wilderness. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he says that in the context, and I think he even says, the manna was provided for your fathers in the wilderness, but I am the bread of life. And he also talks about um, his being that source of eternal water. The Samaritan woman at the well uh, is probably the, the, the closest that we have to as much as Jesus says at one particular time about that water, although he mentions it other places, and says, you drink of this well, you'll thirst again. Come drink of the water that I have to offer and you will never thirst again. And not only does she apparently believe that, she goes back into the city and convinces a bunch of others to come and hear what he has to say about this life giving water. So Jesus is our water of life. He is our bread of life. And those two so fundamental pieces of our existence, bread and water, um, God couldn't get more basic than that for our physical needs and then using Jesus as our spiritual needs and using those two uh, emblems uh, as well. Then we talked about the priesthoods of Aaron, uh, Melchizedek, and Jesus. And you could say these were, these were people, but the priesthood is what was under consideration there. And uh, it would take us uh, way longer than we needed to to go back and, and re-examine who Melchizedek was. But there are three, three individual uh, priesthoods. You had the priesthood of Melchizedek, who was uh, king and priest of Salem, Jerusalem, uh, as, as history will tell us, um, where Abraham leaves where he's going and goes and retrieves Lot. Lot has been kidnapped by a series of kings, a group of kings, and so Abraham assembles an army like that and goes and, and retrieves Lot. And on the way back, uh, he uh, comes down through this territory and um, Melchizedek, the king and, and priest of God, king of uh, Salem, comes out 
and they have an interaction and Abraham pays tithes uh, to him and um, that is a priesthood that we don't often talk about. We don't have a whole lot of detail about, uh, but evidently God had priests before the Levitical priesthood was set up uh, in, in the book of Exodus as, as uh, after the exit from Exodus. Jesus has a priesthood. We have the most information about Melchizedek and, and about Melchizedek and Levitical priesthood and Jesus' priesthood in uh, seven, Hebrews 7, 6, 7, 8, uh, somewhere in those areas. You have a strong comparison between the Levitical priesthood and Jesus' priesthood um, and the fact that the, this, this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, had so many limitations, so, so much that was burdening, burdening, it, burdening it. And over here with Jesus, there was so much freedom. Uh, there were so many conditions that Jesus didn't have that, that slowed or, or bogged this priesthood down, or burdened this priesthood. Um, and so you have that comparison. And then you have in chapter 7 of Hebrews, well, and then there's this one, uh, Melchizedek, thrown in on top. So while we won't go back and look at all of those things, just know that the priesthoods were compared, and your best account of that is going to be uh, in uh, Hebrews 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, uh, really, because that's where uh, the writer of Hebrews sets up these contrasts between the covenants and the and the um, the mission and the priesthood and the um, message and all those other comparisons uh, that from the Old Testament to Christ in the New Testament. One thing about the Melchizedek uh, priesthood and Christ's priesthood was it says they were forever. And um, so it's an interesting discussion about Melchizedek. Uh, Israel and the church, lesson 16. Uh, comparison is just uh, too flat out obvious not to talk about uh, God's people under the old law uh, once the law was given and then God's people, a royal priesthood um, itself, the church, uh, peculiar people of God, a royal priesthood. Uh, you have that comparison uh, between those two, and I have to move on. Canaan and heaven, we talked about the promised land, the qualifications for entry, um, what they had to do to maintain it, and then we talked about the kingdom of heaven and how uh, there are some similarities there. These were all physical. Some of these are physical, but, but a lot of them are spiritual. We talked about marriage. Uh, between the husband and wife and um, Christ and his relationship with the church. And then our last two lessons, which we certainly don't need to go back into in, in much detail if you have been with us, was this idea of uh, water, how God has used water throughout the scriptures, and he uses it in a uh, purifying way. First time with Noah, ridding the world of sin, because Noah and his family were the only ones that were righteous enough to save. Uh, then we have uh, Moses with the uh, parting of the waters of the Red Sea to rid the Israelites of that which held them in bondage, which sin is referred to as bondage in, in the New Testament. That's our bondage. But to rid 
them of the Egyptian army and destroy the Egyptian army. He used water to do that as well. And then we talked about how that uh, manifests itself in the New Testament, how God has set up the use of water to rid us of our sins. We talked about what it takes to become a child of God. Not only baptism, but baptism um, as the final piece of um, three or four other steps that place us into Christ. Um, and that water is, is uh, not just a symbolic um, washing of our, our body of those sins. It, it, that is what where we contact the blood of Christ. That is where we were placed into Christ. And that is what actually, and we talked about the sequence, arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. Well, wash away your sins, arise, and be baptized. It didn't say that. It says, arise, be baptized, wash away your sins. The instruction of Ananias to uh, Saul of Tarsus, if he wanted to uh, be God's minister uh, the way he ultimately came, he had to do that. And, and so... Water is important, and uh, we've talked in numerous lessons about the importance of the blood sacrifices and the blood, um, the sin that inflicts man that God hates so much and how he used these blood sacrifices to make man detest his own sins by making the activity he had to go through to just remember those sins under the old law, the, the slaying of a prized animal, um, how he wanted man to hate sins, uh, his sins as well, as much as he does. And then we talked about how do we interact with the blood of Christ, um, similar to what I said a while ago, baptism. We interact with the blood of Christ also with the Lord's Supper, and his blood cleanses us, 1 John 1, 7 as we continue to walk in the light or walk in His, in his uh, will, um, in keeping with His will. So that is our review. We've got about 10 more minutes and I wanted to hit Lesson 21 with some points that uh, I think will help us reflect and, and wrap up uh, this study. Uh, in the early lessons of, of, this, of this study, we, we talked about uh, how this was going to be characters, institutions, objects, events, and how God has tied them together over time. And it was for, um, it was used by God to help our understanding, to, dis to understand the design by Him for these connections to be made, to recognize the power of God, to have a richer understanding of God's Word, and as a result, to increase our faith in God and, and His power. And so uh, it's only through an examination of this sort that you can get this deep into an understanding and appreciation for these connections and how God has been able to make them, make them happen. Um, and then I talk uh, in two or three paragraphs here about our obligation to know the Scriptures. Um, if we don't know these Old Testament stories, there's no way that we can make those connections. We can read all we want in the New Testament about Jesus and what he did, who he was, but if we don't understand, if we don't read the Old Testament to understand, even when Jesus alludes to Jonah, if we don't even know the story of Jonah, we go, what's that all about? 
So we have to read our Bible. It, it is our responsibility. It is incumbent upon us to know God's Word as best as we can. Without that, com without, without doing our job, we are not going to know what he's talking about as well as we could. And I think we can see that through this study of types. If we don't know these Old Testament people and what they did and what they stood for, what God asked of them, we're not going to be able to make those connections to Jesus in the New Testament. So we have to know our, um, our Bible. We have to know God's Word. Um, we are told in Romans 15, 4, uh, whatsoever is written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Well, what, what is it supposed to instruct us about? Number one, just that we should know about it, but we should learn lessons from it as well um, through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures so that we might have hope. So we, we have a better sense of our hope the more we know about the scriptures and that's what Paul is telling us there in uh, Romans 15 4 the more we know the more we can understand the more we can persevere the more we can be encouraged and the more hope we can have and the more confidence we can have in that hope um, God has determined that in order to love him as much as we should we need to know him and that knowledge comes through a study and an understanding of, of his word um, as I was looking at this reviewing today, I said, to know him is to love him. Hmm. And I looked up YouTube, and there was a song by the teddy bears back in the 50s, to know, know, know him is to love, love, love him. And I'm not going to sing it for you, but there are those of you out there that have, <laughs> have heard that song, and it ring, it, you know, it's going to bring back some memories. But the point is this, the more we know him, and what he has done for us, the more we love him for that. It can't help but produce in us, if we believe what we read about what he has done, and this study of types should help do that for us, the more we love him for what he has done for us through these, and in an attempt to get us to believe that he is who he says he is, that Jesus was his son and he sent him to die for our sins and that we should do everything we can living our lives in as much accordance with his will as possible because we will be held accountable for that. The next paragraph at the bottom of the page there on lesson 21 says growth is not an option. You don't have an option to grow in the grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because it's a command it's not it's like any other command you have to grow and the way to grow you can pray for growth I don't think that alone is going to do you much good there's a responsibility that you have and you have God's Word right here in front of you you have it on on uh, you know eight million different resources that you can go to to learn more about God's Word not that you need to you can go right there spend more time reading God's Word that's how you grow 
in the knowledge of him and of his son. It's not, what did it say, rocket surgery? I heard <laughs> once, <laughs> mixing metaphors there. That, that's what it is. Just spend more time. Grow, Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's just one of the passages. Um, John 12.48, while it was likely speaking of his word rather than ignoring it, um, but we can infer that we as children of his will be held accountable for that knowledge. Um, John 12.48 says, and I looked that up and I wrote something. Oh, the word that I speak spoke to you will judge you. That's what John 12, 46, 48 says. And you could say, okay, yeah, we're going to be judged by the words that are included in here. I'm going to take that a step farther, and maybe I'm misusing this. But since we have been commanded to grow, I don't know why God would minimize that command any more than any other command that he's going to hold us accountable for. If he has told us to grow, we have an obligation and a duty to grow. I have a feeling that on the day of judgment, we are going to be held accountable for our knowledge of his word. If he has provided it for us in the depth and the beauty that he has, and we have ignored reading it and learning it and knowing it, that's a snub. You are telling God, I don't really care what you've done because I can't take the time to inform myself about what you've done. I don't know how you can, can view that any other way than just a direct disobedience and something that you're going to be held accountable for on the Day of Judgment. Present yourselves approved to God, First Tim or Second Timothy two fifteen. So it says, "Don't be ashamed. Rightly handle or accurately handle the word of truth, so that we can present ourselves approved to God." We can't do that unless we know it. Sanctify, First Peter three fifteen says, "Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you about the hope that lies within you." Do you have hope of salvation? Why, yes, I do. I've been baptized and I've lived a good Christian life. Well, tell me more about that. Well, I wish I could, but either I don't have time or I don't have enough knowledge of the words that convinced me to be a Christian so that I can convince you to be a Christian or at least just explain to you the hope that I have and why I have that hope and why I have so much confidence in it. The more you study, the more confidence you will have in that hope. We cannot do that. We cannot do any of those things without knowing His Word. Finally, we got about two minutes left. These lessons have been long and they have been thorough and we haven't covered all of them. There are others in the Bible in that longer paragraph on the last page, we didn't talk about their, their, the requirements of the law of Moses, the sacrifices, the feasts, the scapegoat. 
I didn't know up until a certain point in my life that the term scapegoat that we use every day in here as an excuse or, you know, placing the blame on something over here is a biblical term. The term scapegoat is in the Bible, and it had to do with, uh, with a practice under the old law of, of releasing an animal into the wilderness. Um, and so you have that. You have the wanderings of them. You have the brazen serpent um, uh, situation uh, where Christ lifted up on the cross the brazen serpent so the people wouldn't be bit and died. And some of you know, know that story in Numbers 21. Um, Christ being lifted up the cross. Hosea uh, being uh, marrying a, a harlot to teach him a lesson about um, idolatry, harlotry. Idolatry is harlotry um, with God uh, or toward God. Um, and, it, and it really drove that point home with him. The bond woman and the free woman, Galatians 4, um, of Sarah and Hagar and how um, Paul just really manipulates the things there and, and does a, a fast bait and switch on us there. But it, it, it's all really good stuff. There are, there are more of these here. And so my hope is this, that you will pursue others. When you run across one, you will go, oh, well, that's an interesting comparison. And go back and do what we've done here. Go back to the old, uh, the, the old law, the scriptures of the Old Testament and see why that is being used to make a spiritual point with us. John 20, 30, 31 says this, Therefore many other signs uh, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. He did way more than what we have here, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. I took some liberties and I said, well, let's take the concepts and the points made in that verse and apply them to our study of types. And I abused the scriptures with my own words and I said this, there are many other biblical types used by God in his holy scriptures, not discussed here, but these have been written that you can know God actively worked in history through people, through events and through things to point us toward Christ, toward his church, toward heaven, so that your faith in God can be increased to better glorify him in your life. I never thought these words would come out of my mouth. So that concludes our study on types in the Bible. About that. Who would have known that we would have <laughs> ever gotten to this point? Um, as Chris has said, uh, we appreciate your tuning in. We appreciate um, your thoughts. Uh, if you have anything that you would like to forward to us, questions, uh, comments, um, about anything, yeah, you know that both he and I uh, would, would eagerly uh, receive those comments and do everything that we could to uh, satisfy any questions that you have about anything, not only types in the Bible, but, but anything that relate to life, liberty, and the pursuit of um, Christianity. There you go. Okay. Real quickly, uh, next week, as Chris said, we are going to be uh, showing you a video at the beginning of, of each session, and we'll probably just real quickly say, this is John Clayton. These are Does God Exist lessons. Uh, there are 36 of them, so it's going it's 36 weeks unless we take more than one week with, with uh, a, a, a particular video. 
and that will uh, that will cover the bulk of a an amazing amount of stuff that John Clayton has put together for us. He's a Christian. The man is, is a baptized believer and was an atheist and set out to disprove Christianity from an historical perspective, from a scientific perspective, and he found that he had no other result, no other consequence of his study other than the fact that he was horribly wrong and that he uh, needed to obey the gospel. And he did. And he has spent the last 30, 40 years of his life, uh, 30 years for sure, um, promoting this information. Does God exist? And from a very scientific standpoint, does everything he can to marry science and the scriptures rather than use science as a wedge to push people away from the scriptures, which is what a lot of scientists and atheists do. And he's debated atheists and, and done a lot of great things. So um, we will start that uh, next week. If you want the uh, notes for those lessons, they are on the post directly beneath the one that uh, you're watching right now. Um, other than that, we'll see you hopefully Sunday. Great. Thank you all.